Good afternoon. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the first program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERUFM. Our conversation today is about who gets to vote in Maine primaries. Change is coming. We'll talk about the rollout of semi-open primaries. Maine will be running semi-open primaries for the first time in 2024. We'll explain to voters what to expect, what important deadlines they're facing, and what new procedures may pertain. We'll also talk about how semi-open primaries might affect voter behavior and election outcomes. This show was pre-recorded on January 16th. Send your comments to news at weru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum. Let me introduce our guests. Uh, Shanna Bellows, Shanna is the Maine Secretary of State and is a frequent flyer on the show, and we're very pleased to have you here again this month. Shanna, thank you. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. Jill Goldthwaite is a Hancock County journalist and political columnist, a former Maine State Senator, herself unenrolled. Um, welcome, Jill. Appreciate your perspective thank you so today. Much. Yep. And Laurel Harbridge Young. Laurel is Professor of Political Science, a faculty fellow at the Institute for Policy Research at Northwestern University. Thanks for joining us, Laurel. Thank you for the invitation to be a part of this today. So let's get started. I think we might as well set a baseline and ask you first, Shanna, just what what is the law going to provide in Maine? What's coming up? This is a very exciting new law, semi-open primaries. And for Democrats, they will continue to vote in the Democratic primary. Republicans will continue to vote in the Republican primary. But for unenrolled voters, so Jill, uh, for the first time ever, will be able to participate in the primary of their choice without changing their enrollment or enrolling in that party. So an unenrolled voter, and keep in mind, an unenrolled voter is someone who is registered. They are on the voter rolls, but they have chosen not to enroll in a party. So they're not a Democrat, they're not a Republican or a Green Independent or a no labels or libertarian voter. They are unenrolled. Those unenrolled voters, when they go to vote, whether that is as an absentee voter or in person on election day, uh, will be able to choose which ballot they receive. And what are the important dates for people to remember here? Because if you're already enrolled, you could unenroll and participate in the other party if you wanted to. So there's some big picture dates that we in elections get really excited about. January 20th, under federal law, the military and overseas voters can start to receive their ballots. So uh, that is 45 days prior to election day. And that is the same across the country. In Maine, we are very fortunate, 30 days prior to election day, anyone can participate in no excuse absentee voting. That means you can vote absentee, you can request your ballot online, you can go to your clerk's office, you can call your clerk, you can vote in person absentee, you can mail it back. There are lots of ways to vote in that 30-day period, which starts February 5th. Now, in terms of your participation in the semi-open primary, now, keep in mind, Maine's laws are designed to limit rapid back and forth party switching. So once you've enrolled in a party, you must remain enrolled in that party for 90 days. So that's three months after your enrollment. So for anyone that celebrated the end of year holidays by enrolling in a new party, you're in that party through the March 5th primary. 
But perhaps you had been a lifelong member of a particular party and you think you might want to become unenrolled and vote in the other party's primary for some odd reason. As long as you do that 15 days prior to election day. So that is that is really important. And that's going to fall, you know, keep in mind, we have the President's Day holiday and not all town offices are open every day and you change your enrollment, you ha- your, your clerk is going to have to accept that. So you really need to make sure that if that's something that you want to do, you should do it today uh, because you can't just go on election day. If you're a Democrat and you show up on election day and you want to vote in the Republican primary, you're not going to be able to do that. So that 15 days is actually February 19th, right? And that's a holiday. Is that what you're saying? And so then the last day your clerk is there and maybe the 16th, but maybe they're not open on Friday. So then you're out to the 15th. That's what you're talking about, right? Well said. And <laughs> okay. you want a job in elections? No. <laughs> Just <kidding. laughs> okay. So people can change, right? Um, are they going to be able to tell if they're what party they're in? Be, I, like over the years, I've run into many people who are green independents who think they're independent, but they're not. They're in a party. So are people going to be able to check their enrollment status um, online or do they have to call their clerk? Today, you need to call your clerk. You need to check with your clerk. We don't have a voter lookup function that feeds back into the central voter registration system. And from a cybersecurity perspective, you don't want just anyone online to be able to access that central voter registration system directly. Um, So absolutely, people should contact their municipal clerk to verify their registration if they can't remember whether they might be registered as a green independent uh, or unenrolled, uh, because the common vernacular is to say, well, I'm an independent, I'm an enrolled. But sometimes people have uh, either intentionally or unintentionally enrolled in the green independent party. And of course, the green independent party has not requested a presidential primary, nor has, for that matter, the no labels or the libertarian parties. So voters who are enrolled in those three parties are not eligible to vote on March 5th unless they happen to live in South Portland, which is having uh, a special election that day for their state representative to replace the late Lois Galgay-Reco. Okay, so that was like a quite a bit of information there. So the qualified parties in Maine are the Maine Dems, the Maine GOP, the Green Independents. Now you're saying no labels and Libertarians too, right? Okay. That's right. No labels and Libertarian um, both both of those parties uh, qualified. Uh, my office certified that qualification. I sent them letters um, just within the last couple of weeks. So if you're one of those five, you can't vote as an unenrolled person in the open primary thing. Like if you're, let's just say a libertarian, you can't vote a Republican ballot. I mean, you can't vote That's a Republican right. ballot, right? Okay. And if you just joined, uh, and for example, especially with Libertarian Party that met that threshold for qualification of 5,000 voters, um, as well as no labels, uh, just met that threshold of 5,000 voters. So if your registration is within 90 days of the election, you can't change it because there is that waiting period. Uh, So so that's really important for voters as well. Now, keep in mind, if voters are curious, well, did I enroll or didn't I enroll? Uh, Clerks send a voter registration acknowledgement notice. It's called a in, in the field, it's called a VRAN. 
So those BRAN notices go out when someone changes their enrollment and the voter uh, should be in receipt of that that can confirm for them that date of enrollment. But to be sure, call your clerk, basically. Or just call your clerk. It's yeah. a small, Maine is a small state. You can okay. definitely just call your municipal clerk. But so there are only two presidential primaries, the Dems and the Republicans, right? Shanna, in Maine, you can vote in these primaries if you're going to be 18 by November, right? So That's right. So what's the if birthday? you're 17, if your birthday is on or before, and you will be 18 on or before November 5th of 2024, then you were eligible to vote. And this happened to a young family member of mine, went down to vote in the 2020 primary, knew that he could and 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 uh, um, was in fact allowed to vote. But, you know, sometimes people get confused. You can be 17 as long as you're going to be 18 on or before November 5th of 2024, which means your birth date was 11-5-2006 or older. That's right. Okay. So now I'm going to put Jill on the spot. Uh, like I know, Unenrolleds are not a monolithic group, but how does this feel to somebody who's, you know, unenrolled? Is this like a good thing? I love this. It's like a party. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, a political party. We have been struggling with this for years. It is our choice to be unenrolled. And that's a legitimate choice in our system. And we pay for the primaries. I pay. We all pay for the primary elections, and yet we cannot participate in them. Not only did we used to have to join a party to participate, once we were in, we had to stay in for 90 days. And there are a lot of us, for our own reasons, who who would prefer not to do that. And we didn't really have any alternative other than to really be a bystander at perhaps the most significant part of the process, which is putting candidates in front of the public. And we had no say in that. And then the parties got disgruntled if people, you know, joined a party and then got back out or then went to the other party. But that was the only way we could participate. So this is a huge step forward for a group of people who represents there have been years where the unenrolled voters were more than either the Democrats or the Republicans. Now they're slightly less than Democrats, but there's still more of them than Republicans, and certainly far more of them than the uh, Green Independents or Libertarians. And um, we're delighted to be able to participate. Laurel, what's the evidence in terms of I'm going to ask you a little bit more later about you know all the different flavors of primaries, open, close, whatever, but like how many unenrolled voters are there generally? And does a law like this actually draw unenrolled voters into the process? I don't have any statistics on the exact numbers of unenrolled voters. Obviously, it differs a lot across states in terms of how people are um, designated. But, you know, as Jill said, in many states, there are a lot of people who don't identify with one of the major political parties or even one of the more minor political parties. And so primary rules like this give them the opportunity to participate. Um, And I'd be happy to talk more about kind of why primary election participation is so important, particularly with so many safe elections. But the challenge and kind of where there's a limit to how much these laws make a difference is that who participates in primary elections, regardless of the type of rules that you have, whether you have closed, open, semi-open, so forth, there's a lot of evidence that who participates in the primaries doesn't actually differ that much. 
Because the people who tend to be most politically interested, most politically knowledgeable, feel the need or the desire to participate in primary elections tend to be partisans. Um, and so while there will be an influx of the unenrolled voters here, um, in many cases, it doesn't necessarily change the fact that relative to the general electorate or the population more broadly, primary electorates tend to be more ideologically extreme, more highly partisan, and so forth. So you don't see a massive difference where a closed partisan primary is made up of ideologically extreme individuals and a semi-open is going to all of a sudden turn into moderates dictating the outcome. What kind of voters tend to be unenrolled? I mean, I th- you, you hear stuff like, well, there are people who can't make up their mind or, I mean, but it's probably not what we think. Who are unenrolled voters generally? Well, I would say for my part that um, far from being people who can't make up our mind, um, we are people who are somewhat disenchanted with the major political parties, at least, and um, prefer not to be associated with them. Yeah, so I would I would I would agree with that. I would say, you know, they, they they include people who are not politically interested. They include people who are politically interested, but unhappy with the two major party alternatives. Um, that though, going back to my previous point, it may or may not lead them to participate in the primary. If they think that they might be able to determine the outcome or change it, and you know, maybe they really dislike option A in the party, but option B would be okay, maybe they'll participate. But often it may lead them to just stay out of the primary because they're not that happy with the direction of the party whatsoever. You know, it also includes perhaps closet partisans. Um, and this is a, a resource that was on your website as well, but work by political scientists, Samara Klar and Yana Krupnikov, suggests that some people are undercover partisans, where basically the kind of political vitriol, the kind of distaste for conflict in our partisan society um, has led a lot of people to think that associating with a party is viewed negatively. So if you ask people, suppose that you were trying to make the best impression on someone, which party identification would you pick? People are much more likely to pick independent and less likely to pick part one of the partisans than if you just ask them their own partisan identification. Hmm. So people hmm. think that kind of this looks better. So I can't say what fraction in Maine or in any other state fall in these different categories of undercover partisans, not very politically interested versus politically interested and truly unhappy with the two alternatives. But those are kind of the flavor of some of the types that you might get in unenrolled voters. I will say that, uh, if I could, Anne, that the um, most of the states that have adopted some form of an open primary have done so by referendum, which is a measure initiated by the public. So this is not something somebody designed in a state capital. The people wanted this to be an option for voters. Of course, that wasn't true here in Maine. It was a a legislative enactment here in Maine, but I see what you're saying. Jill, um, you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is who gets to vote in Maine primaries. Change is coming. Our guests this afternoon are Jill Goldthwaite, Hancock County journalist and political columnist and a former Maine state senator, Laurel Harbord-Young, professor of political science, uh, faculty fellow at the Institute for Policy Research, Northwestern University, and Shanna Bellows, our own Maine Secretary of State. This program was pre-recorded on January 16th. No listener calls are being taken right now.
Shanna, we're going to know how many people take this option in our primaries, right? We will. And it will be very interesting to see. So we have the 2022 numbers for unenrolled uh, Democrats and Republicans. So in 2022, unenrolled came in number three. Uh, it was approximately 265,700 voters in Maine. Uh, Republicans had 280,700 and Democrats 345,400. Now, when you look back at 2020, and that was the 2020 presidential primary, uh, there was a contested primary on the Democratic side. There were 12 candidates running, and there were 205,937 Democrats who participated in the Democratic primary. Um, on the Republican side, it was uncontested, and there were 113,728 Republicans who participated. So, uh, just um, slightly more um, than half, essentially. And so this year, on the Republican side, it's contested primary. Uh, right now, It's uh, there are pending um, proceedings. There are five candidates uh, potentially on the ballot, Ryan Binkley, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy, and potentially Donald Trump. On the Democratic side, there are two candidates in a write-in, so Joseph Biden and Dean Phillips, and then the write-in is Stephen Lyon. That'll just be really interesting to see. Do you see a flip? Do you see the inverse of what happened in the 2020 primary or not? And similarly, of those 265,700 uh, unenrolled from 2022, and, and that number is actually slightly higher in 2023, it, it got just up above 272,000, you know, what percentage of them will participate. Now, the, we do track voter participation history. And of course, the clerks will carefully track the ballot preferences. And so there will be data because this is a public record or the voter file is, is information about how many ballots are requested for each of those partisan primaries by voters who are unenrolled. So we'll know a lot more after this particular primary about how Mainers have reacted to uh, this particular law. And specifically, how many unenrolls requested which ballot? Right? Yes, we will yep. know that. Yep. Um, and that will be really interesting. It, it sure will. Laurel, yeah, editorializing for a second. I can see from what Chen is saying that whether it's a contested primary or not may be one of the most important factors in voter turnout for a pri primary election. But historically, how low, I mean, generally compared to a general election, how low is primary turnout? And if we think a measure like semi-open primaries is going to bring some people out, but maybe not enough to change the election outcome, do you feel like it's still worth doing? Um, yeah. So I guess starting from the perspective of just kind of what does turnout look like, Shanna could speak more about the specifics in Maine, but kind of generally speaking, primary turnout is much, much lower than turnout in the general election. You know, there's some statistics here which go to a midterm election year. So obviously they, they're they not going to capture the presidential primary, but would speak more perhaps to the primary for um, state um, offices as well as um, federal statewide offices. But in 2022, overall across the country, the average was about 21% turnout in the primary. Um, I believe Maine in 2022 was 13%, um, which actually put them towards the low end of the spectrum in terms of turnout in the primary election. This is a really small fraction of the public. And more importantly, it is not a representative section of the public. 
When you combine this with the fact that there are many safe seats, so this might be U.S. House seats that are safe uh, for one party or the other, um, but also you know state legislative districts that are safe for one party or another, this really leads to a small fraction of the electorate making the decision about who represents entire areas. And so there's um, some kind of a nice statistic from um, the group Unite America, which pointed out that at the U.S. House level in 2022, 83% of the U.S. House was elected by just 8% of Americans. So basically, the safe seats where the primary is the one that matters, combined with low participation in the primaries, means that a really small fraction of people are picking who is representing everybody else. And as I mentioned before, participation in primaries tends to skew more partisan and more ideologically extreme than participation in general elections or in the broader public um, as a whole. And so what this means is that who is elected may not be representative of the interests of the population more broadly. And in some of my own research with my collaborators, Sarah Anderson and Daniel Butler, we've also thought about this from the perspective of the incentives that elected officials have. So if we think about elected officials and they're trying to stay in office, so they need to win elections, if they're really concerned with winning that primary election, they are going to have incentives to side with the primary voters when they think that the primary and the general electorate disagree. And this is going to be in part because the primary, because it's co-partisans, are going to be more unified. So if you go against the median voter, you're going against a large group of voters, but also because primary voters are going to care more about the positions that candidates take. Party's not on the ballot, so it's going to be more about the position that people take. So all of this just is to suggest that primary elections have the opportunity to really skew the representation that elected officials provide toward a very small slice of the electorate. And hopefully broadening that participation would have the opposite effect. Absolutely. Yes. So the more the primary electorate looks like the general electorate or looks like the general population, the better, I would argue, is the quality of representation and the electoral incentives that you provide to the legislators. I want to ask some questions about turn crossover voting. And I, I know some people are um, concerned that, you know, one party, voters from one party would unenroll and vote in the other primary to sort of sabotage the election or bring forward the least the candidate least likely to win in the general. Does your research or anybody's that you know of show that that actually happens? Or do people just tend to vote in the primary? of the candidate that they really like the best, genuinely? I am not aware of any evidence uh, that systematically points to there being a kind of sabotage effect in crossover voting. Um, there is some evidence of kind of the opposite, that people engage in crossover voting to actually help end up with an outcome closer to their preferred outcome. So they're not trying to sabotage the other party or kind of help their side win. Rather, they're using crossover voting, particularly in a scenario where they're in the party that's the district-wide or statewide minority, to help the more moderate candidate in the opposing party win, who would help produce an outcome that is closer to their own preference. So for me, I don't think about that as sabotage. I think that is being strategic voting, where someone is trying to help get an outcome that's closer to their most preferred outcome given the realities of being in the kind of minority in a state. Mm -hmm. And a good example of this is Alaska in 2022. Putting aside the details of the top four primary and right choice voting, which they implemented, in the primary for the U.S. Senate seat, 
uh, when Lisa Murkowski was running against Kelly Shabaka, um, you had an instance in which Republican voters favored Shabaka over Murkowski. And if it was a closed partisan primary, Shabaka would have won. So I think on the numbers there, um, based on some exit polls, 58% of Republican voters supported Shabaka, with only 18% supporting Murkowski. However, both independent voters, um, or kind of unaffiliated, I think is the technical term there, but also Democrats in Alaska disproportionately favored Murkowski. So in that, that particular race, the Democratic voters were not particularly enthusiastic about any of the Democrats on the ballot. And so Democratic voters, according to the exit polls, 69% voted for Murkowski in the primary election. For the unaffiliated voters, it was 46% Murkowski, 35% Shabaka. So to me, that's strategic voting. That's people trying to help get help the most moderate candidate and the other side win because that moves policy outcomes or kind of the, the candidate closer to what they want. It's not about sabotaging the other side. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want to uh, just because we're going to be on the radio and people are going to be listening to 15 minutes here and 15 minutes there. I want to make sure that we repeat at this half hour mark um, before I take the station break, Shanna, just tell people again who can do what on March 5th and repeat the part you did right at the big top of the hour. That's right. So we're going to have semi-open primaries, and that means Democrats will be able to vote in the Democratic primary. Republicans will be able to vote in the Republican primary. But if you were not a member of any party at all, you are an unenrolled, you will be able to choose the ballot of your choice for that primary, whether you're voting absentee or on election day. And we have five qualified parties. And if you're a member of any of the five, you will not be able to pick another ballot. You'll have to stick to what you got, right? That's right. If you were enrolled in any of the five parties, and that is the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, the Green Independent Party, the Libertarian Party, and the No Labels Party, then your choice to be enrolled in a party means you are restricted in primary contest to voting in that particular party primary. And the uh, Libertarian, No Labels, and Green Independent parties declined to request a presidential primary. So on March 5th, the only two parties that requested a primary are the Democratic and Republican uh, parties. So those are the two primaries, and unenrolled voters can choose Democrats can vote in a Democratic, as can unenrolled, and Republicans and unenrolled voters can vote in the Republican primary. Now, it's important to know, unenrolled voters do not get two ballots. They must, in fact, make a choice. Uh, but if you're in one of the other parties, then uh, you are restricted to municipal elections that are that day, uh, or if you're in South Portland, uh, House District 122 is special special election. And if you've been in a party for more than 90 days, you can unenroll by February 16th, if your town clerk is open that day, and pick another ballot on election day, vote an unenroll, as an unenrolled voter on that day. But you and if you're unsure of your party registration, you should contact your city or town clerk, and they can let you know what your party registration is. Because sometimes people think, oh, I'm an independent, I'm unenrolled. And sometimes that is accurate, but they may have forgotten. Sometimes they've enrolled in the Green Independent Party, which is a separate political party. And this is important. I mean, Laurel made an important point earlier that party primaries see lower turnout. Uh, they certainly see higher turnout than caucuses. So I think Maine made a huge step forward when we moved from caucuses to primaries. But in 2020, the primary turnout was 29% of the voting age population. 
and we can do better. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERUFM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Laurel Harbridge Young, Professor of Political Science, Faculty Fellow at the Institute for Policy Research at Northwestern University, Shanna Bellows, the Maine Secretary of State, and Jill Goldthwaite, Hancock County journalist, political columnist, and former Maine State Senator, herself a prominent and proud unenrolled voter. So as we uh, begin the next segment of our conversation, Jill, I, I kind of want to put you on the spot again and talk about um, do unenrolled voters, do they tend to actually switch back and forth? And is that it's not really odd behavior. It's why you're unenrolled. But talk about, you know, whether you might vote with this party one time, with that party the other time, what do you think motivates people? I think what motivates people are the candidates that are emerging from the two parties. Um, sometimes there is an independent candidate, and that can be motivating as well. But I think um, independents start to get engaged when there's a candidate from a party that they really like, or candidates from the parties that they don't like either one of them or one of them, and uh, they they want to participate in that final decision. Mm-hmm. It's, and so, it's not easy. I mean, I don't know if you plan to talk about this later, but it's not easy to run um, for anything other than a municipal office where everybody tends to know everybody. That's not too difficult. But when you move up even to the state level and certainly the federal level, it's really hard to run as an independent. First of all, you don't know how. You don't have any kind of an organization backing you, helping you understand what you need to have, what you need to do, all the regulations about spending money. Nobody does that. If you're lucky, you have a few loyal friends who will try to help you sort it out from what you've seen on cable TV or whatever. But it's a challenge to not have, I mean, there's a great advantage in having the backing of a party when you're running. And not only that, if you're lucky enough to get there, that's hard too. And it's hard for a couple of different reasons. There is no office for independence, or until recently there has not been in Augusta. There's not even a place to put your coat. I mean, everything there is based on a two-party system. And legally, there are a lot of things where independent legislators who have been duly elected by their district are kept out by virtue of things that say, we're going to create a committee on studying health services for children. And the committee will have three members of the majority party, two members of the minority party, two members of the public, and a doctor and a nurse. There's not even room for an independent. And I'm proud to say that when I was there and called that to the attention of my colleagues, we changed a bunch of statutes to make space for whoever was serving in office, duly elected by their district. That's in some ways a distraction. I mean, it's helpful for other people who will run as independents, but it's not the work that I went there to do is try to fix process stuff. I wanted to get at the issues. So it's difficult to run. It's difficult to serve. And uh, all those are obstacles that face anyone who wants to run as an independent. Can you talk a little bit about where these systems open, close, semi-open, um, nonpartisan, where are these systems fit in the two-party system? Laurel, you know, Jill made the point earlier that some of these open primary laws face legislative opposition and it takes a referendum to get them passed. W what do you think about these in a uh, two-party system? I guess a couple of observations here. So first, just in terms of the, the structure of our two-party system and the kind of 
factors that work against um, independent or third-party candidates being able to win, it comes back to our election laws. And so this is something um, called um, Duverger's Law within political science, but it's basically the idea that with first-past-the-post laws, single-member districts, that... Now, just people may not understand what first-past-the-post means. Yeah, so it basically means that whoever gets a plurality is going to win. Okay. And so even if you, if there are, you know, five candidates and one candidate gets 33% of the vote and that's the most of anybody, that one candidate gets the entire seat. And so all of this means that it's very difficult for third-party candidates to win. So at a national level, as well as at a state level, um, the two-party system dominates. Um, within that two-party system, then, is the question about, you know, what role do primaries play? And I think that some people within the parties take more of a view that the party should decide what the party does or who is elected under the party's name. Um, but I think a lot of voters, and part of why we see this happening through referendum, is saying, well, the parties don't represent the people in a broad sense, because many people do not identify as Democrat or Republican. And so even if our choices on the ballot are going to largely have a D or an R next to our name, the public more broadly should have a say in who those people are. And so I think that that's where some of the push from the public is for primary election laws that expand the group of people who are eligible to participate. And then certainly within um, states that have been moving toward nonpartisan primaries, so that's things like the top two primary in California and Washington, the top four in Alaska, Nevada is partway through their process to potentially go to a top five primary, um, is that that creates something that's a little bit different than what we've been talking about here. So not only can everybody participate in a nonpartisan primary, but they can also select different parties for different offices. So because all of the candidates are on the same ballot, and that includes the Democrats, the Republicans, the independents, the unaffiliated candidates, and so forth. It means that let's suppose that you're a Democratic voter. So you live in a kind of urban area that you have a Democratic you know, district around you, but the state as a whole is heavily Republican. So in a, with a nonpartisan primary ballot, you would be able to, if you wanted, to select the Democratic candidate that you like the most for your state legislative district or your U.S. House district. But at the same time, on the same ballot, select, let's say, the most moderate Republican in the statewide races, um, because that's who you prefer the most. And so that gives people a choice race by race in terms of where they think there's competition, who might be electable in the general election, who might be viable, so forth, that is different than the type of elections that we're talking about here for Maine, where once you select the ballot, if you select the Democratic ballot, you get all of all the offices of yeah. Democratic candidates. And if you select a Republican ballot, it's all of the offices with Republican candidates. So for unenrolled voters in Maine, they might have to make the decision, you know, do I care more about this, you know, statewide race and kind of having a say in the candidates there? Or do I care more about my, you know, state legislative race or U.S. House race and the candidates there if those are two different parties? So this is making me think, Shen, if somebody picks a party for March, are they going to have to stick with that party until June? 
Is that 90 days? A lot. Uh, no, remember, they're not changing their party. They're just selecting a ballot. No, I meant if somebody actually did. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, go ahead. Never mind. Yeah. So, and I, I think also it's important to remember that in Maine, we we don't have ranked choice voting for all of the races, of course. We don't have ranked choice voting for the state legislative or the gubernatorial races and the general election ballot um, because of the wording of our constitution uh, and I mean Supreme Court, Court ruling to that effect. But we do have ranked choice voting in the presidential primary, which is March 5th, and people will see a ranked choice ballot both in the Democratic and the Republican primaries um, because we do have a declared write-in for the Democratic side. So there are three candidates there potentially. And the March 5th primary will be the presidential primary. And then the June primary will be uh, primaries for state legislative races as well as the congressional primaries. Uh, so those are differentiated. And that's just important for voters for their expectations. When you show up in March, you're going to be getting a presidential primary ballot and then any municipal races that might be um, uh, also happening at the same time. Although I think it's a little bit more common, I don't have data on this, that sometimes the municipalities are doing some of their local um, issues uh, in June when the statewide primary happens, yep. since the presidential primary is relatively new here in our state. Jill, I know you're a keen observer of the political scene here in Maine. Have you seen um, how the Republican Party versus the Democratic Party is approaching the semi-open question? Are they looking at those voters as prospects or interlopers? Or uh, Have you seen I, anything? I think, yeah, I think more of the latter, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> People say, you know, independents ought to get organized and be a party. Well, then we'd be like a party. So we don't want to do that. But um, we, it leaves us, we don't have channels of communication that the parties have. We don't have offices that the parties do. So to credit us with being able to sabotage an election is quite heavy stuff, but I don't <laughs> think we're capable of it, really. <laughs> um, I think uh, I, I kind of scrounged around in a bunch of uh, elections and in Maine's gubernatorial election from 1970 to the present, that's 53 years, there was only one two-way race. That was the Brennan-Cragen race in 1982. Hmm. Other than that, there have been three, four, and five-way general elections. And I think that kind of feeds the the sense of the parties that, you know, there's, there's these spoiler candidates as we hear about, but as I look at the results from those, I'm not seeing a race where the combined percentages of the two bo bottom finishers would have changed the result of the race. So I think that whole sense of anxiety about the spoiler effect, I'm not really sure that, that that's accurate. What seems more clear to me is that Mainers want more alternatives. We are not content with the candidates that the parties are putting in front of us. Um, we're looking for more people. There are more people who think, maybe I have a shot at this. A lot of the people who think that are sadly disabused of that notion on election day and finish with you know 2% of the vote, 5% of the vote. Still, it's their right to try. And a lot of them bring an interesting perspective to those races. 
and give us all some other things to think about. And honestly, most of them are really wonderful people who just have a passion for trying to be useful in the political world and 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 can't resist trying that. And that's not a bad thing either. Right. So this you started down this path, Jen. I just want to tie it up. This will be a ranked choice ballot, right? And the rules are like if somebody gets 50% or 51% on the first round, no ranked choice tabulation. But if nobody gets 50% ranked choice tabulation, is that the way it goes? Yeah. And I think it's important to recognize we do ranked choice voting tabulation for the presidential primary by congressional district. Oh, yeah. As we split our presidential electors. So that will be shared as well. So uh, we'll we'll see what happens. Um, we we will both Democrats and Republicans will have a ranked choice ballot. Now, allocation, you know, what the parties do with regards to delegates to their conventions and decisions about their general election nominee uh, is based on party rule. And those really are the jurisdiction of the party. The presidential primary itself, uh, that is set forth in statute by the legislature. And uh, the parties did, in fact, request that. And so that is moving forward and it is held in the same way for both parties. Uh, the ballot looks the same, although, again, with with different candidates for each. There, there is a process, of course, of allocation of delegates uh, to the party conventions and then the party parties making decisions about their nominees that are then directed to the state. Uh, now, should the no labels or libertarian or green independent parties wish to um, have a presidential candidate on the ballot in November, uh, they could do so uh, based on uh, a meeting or convention of their party membership uh, in accordance with their rules. Right. So uh, that's that's just important context for people to have as well, that they they may well see more candidates on the presidential ballot in November than, uh, or different candidates. For example, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is is collecting signatures to be a, a non-party uh, candidate mm-hmm. and may or may not qualify to be on the ballot in November based on that. Going back to what you said, do we run four tabulations in the primary for each party by congressional district or is that just in the general? I'm sorry, four? Do you mean for each party, there'll be a CD1, a CD2? In the primary, no, right? Yes, and a statewide. So, oh, they, so they do it in the primary, really? Three, three okay. on each side. Okay, yeah. in the primary. Okay, great. Just to keep it, you know, very complicated. <laughs> well, it's, it's, not, it's not too complicated insofar as we will publish those results on our website and people will be able to see that. Now, if someone receives more than 50%, uh, we will, of course, be evaluating that uh, both in each congressional district and at the statewide level. Um, Before you decide whether you have to do yeah. it or not. Yeah. Yeah. All right. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Shenna Bellows, Maine Secretary of State, Jill Goldthwaite, Hancock County journalist and political columnist, former Maine State Senator, and Laurel Harbridge-Young, Professor of Political Science, Faculty Fellow at the Institute for Policy Research, Northwestern University. This program was recorded on January 16th, 2024. No listener calls are being taken at the um, risk of being extremely repetitive. 
I'm just going to ask you, Shannon, one more time to tell anybody who just tuned in um, what's coming up on March 5th and who can vote. Semi-open primaries. For the first time ever, unenrolled voters who are not a member of any party but are in fact registered will be able to vote in the presidential primary of their choice, either the Democratic primary or the Republican primary. People in a party will be restricted to primaries associated with their political parties. So for Republicans, they're still voting in the Republican primary, Democrats still voting in the Democratic primary, members of no labels, uh, libertarian or green independent parties not participating in any of the presidential primaries this year because those parties uh, declined to host presidential primaries in Maine. Uh, but the unenrolled voters, I think Jill called it earlier in the show, um, like Christmas or, or, or like a party, <laughs> but not a political party. Um, and uh, so that is that is the option and the choice of voters who are unenrolled. And um, if you're unenrolled currently, you don't have to do anything except for show up and decide which ballot you want uh, or uh, designate that when you request a ballot. Uh, if you are enrolled in a party, you may want to check that registration. You have to have been in the party for 90 days before being able to leave that party uh, under existing main law. But if you were in a party and wanted to change that, you have uh, just, just a couple of weeks left to do so to be able to participate in the presidential primary in March based on that enrollment change. Um, I know this is on some people's minds, and I just want to get it out of the way. So um, if someone ranks a candidate on their primary ballot who is subsequently withdrawn, dies, or disqualified, what happens to that rank? So this is very much on people's minds. And it's it was contemplated by the Maine legislature uh, that there is a process. If a candidate uh, is uh, deceased or disqualified or withdraws after the ballots are printed, and for, for the political geeks listening, it's Title 21A, Section 371. You can read it for yourself online. And it states very clearly that if a name is printed on the ballot for a candidate, and then that ballot, that candidate withdraws, is deceased or disqualified, those ballots are not counted. Uh, so essentially, we, we count blank ballots all of the time, right? Um, sometimes people write in Mickey Mouse or Donald Duck, or they... Um, or they leave something blank because they're they're protesting a particular race. And that doesn't mean that the rest of their ballot isn't counted. Uh, it is just simply that that particular vote that particular for that particular candidate would not be counted. So like in ranked choice voting land, you'd skip to the next mm -hmm. rank? Okay. That's right. That's what the law requires. And there used to be something called a double skip. I don't know what happens if, like, a double skip, you get eliminated or something, right? We, do we still have that? Or There is a presumption after a certain number of skips that the voter is not um, actually intending to vote for that particular race. Uh -huh. And again, folks can check out Title 21A is our election <laughs> law. Read it in thoroughness. So he here we go. Semi-open primaries. Laurel. I know you're saying that it's unlikely that they're going to actually change the outcome, but what can we say to voters to like get in there and try? So absolutely. So I do not want to come off as discouraging in terms of getting people out to vote here. So I think a couple of things that I would emphasize. One is that there may be some close elections, whether it's in, you know, presidential elections or others, the addition of, you know, a couple percent more people from the unrolled side could make a difference. 
Um, more broadly, regardless of whether or not your vote is the kind of pivotal vote, we should still, I would encourage people to participate because we need a broader slice of the electorate in primary elections. And that change may come slowly. So it may be that people who are outside the kind of partisan kind of extremes or partisan fringes aren't jumping into the primary elections right now. But over time, if we can, whether through reforms or through kind of civic organizations boosting participation, if more people participate in primary elections such that primary elections look like the broader swath of the electorate, we're going to end up with higher quality representation from our electorate, from our elected officials and kind of elected officials who are acting in the interests of a broader slice of the public. And so the only way to do that is to participate and, you know, change might come slowly, but I think the more people can do to advance that and encourage others to vote as well, the better. Talk again about how this looks to unenrolled voters. And even if your vote is not going to change the outcome, there's a principle at stake, Jill. Well, there is a principle at stake, but the principle for me that's most important is um, that all Americans should be able to vote. And I think that, you know, registering in a party and then having to vote in that party, I get that. You have opportunities to change. But I think the fact that everybody can get in on that and, you know, if you look at all those elections that I referenced, those gubernatorial elections in Maine, where uh, there were almost always at least three candidates and sometimes five, every governor except Angus King is in, in, as an incumbent and Governor Mills twice, they're the only ones to have received over 50 percent of the, the vote to be governor. And Otherwise, they were usually in the 30s, maybe the 40s, but with 35, 38 percent of the vote, they became governor of our state. So there is an opportunity to have a vote make a difference. And some people look, look at that as sabotage and some people look that, at that as the democratic process. And uh, I tend to look at it as the latter. Well, I think, you know, what, what some people are thinking about and I'm, I don't know if this happens, but what some people are thinking about is members of one party, longtime members of one party, unenrolling from that party in order to vote for the worst candidate in the other party. Their hearts are really with their home party, but they're trying to advance a weak candidate for the opposition. And well, I don't know, you know, what you want to call weak. I think they're trying to support a candidate that they prefer to perhaps to the front runner, knowing that that candidate could win and they would be okay with that, that they're expressing a preference for um, a candidate who might not be running in the top of that heap. But, you know, if enough people did that, potentially there's an opportunity there, whether, you know, whether that's anything that's going to happen and giving how Shanna has so eloquently delivered all those deadlines to us, if we can now remember them when we get up tomorrow morning, um, I think that it's probably too late for much of that to be going on for this particular election. And so the anxiety about people kind of crossing over, changing their vote or voting for somebody weak, or, I, I just don't see that as happening. I, I can tell you that People are really distressed about the upcoming election. And a lot of people are, are asking me questions about process, like when do I enroll and how can I vote? And is, can I vote if I do this? And can I vote if I do that? You know, I'm I'm 
I don't have the command that Shanna does of all of those details at the tip of my tongue, but a lot of people in my community are asking me questions about the election and how it'll work and when do you have to do what in order to be able to vote one way or another way. Well, I mean, in the question that I posed, I don't think people are talking about independent or unenrolled voters, you know, doing something other than a mm -hmm. genuine and strategic vote. I think they're thinking about members of a party doing and I can remember my own parents doing this in one election when I was a child but you had your hand up to address that Laurel do you still have that thought yeah so I mean I think it just goes back to what I was mentioning in some of my comments earlier which is just there just there isn't evidence that that happens at a mm -hmm. wide scale level yeah you know as you said Anne you know maybe you recall someone doing it maybe you know someone who's done it but in terms of a wide scale effort it both it takes time and energy and people are unlikely to do that but also, people are going to want to have a say in their own party's primary. And that's, you know, I know in the case of Maine, it's separate for the presidential and then for the other races. But there are lots of races in many cases for states that people are choosing between. And so just because you may want to, even if you wanted to kind of sabotage in one particular race, you would be having to give up what you'd be voting for in all the other races. And so, you know, I think also, you know, in the example that I gave of Alaska, where Democratic voters are voted for Republican candidates in the primary election, all that evidence suggests that they were trying to select the candidate who they most preferred, who they thought had the best chance of winning. Yep. They were not yep. trying to sabotage. Yep. They were not yep. trying to pick the weak candidate. Rather, they were trying to pick the candidate that, as long as they made it through the primary, was almost certainly going to win in the general election. So yep. again, it just yep. suggests that the wide-scale sabotage by partisans, there's not much evidence for it, and I don't think it's likely. Good. We're now running into uh, the end of our show, and I do want to give you each a few minutes to wrap it up. And I think we'll go with you first, Jill. Um, you know, tell us a little bit of your final thoughts about um, what's coming up and the subject in general. I think that the most optimistic thing coming out of all this is that we have states now experimenting with different types of elections for different reasons, tailored to their own state, their own political preferences, the character of the state. But we've got five or six or seven states now using some kind of a different kind of primary, open primary, the blanket primaries, the top two, the top four, and now I hear a top five. And I think as these are implemented, we may well discover imperfections in them or aspects of them that work extremely well, and that will begin to shape more states who come online or perhaps working toward perfecting the, the model that we already chose. But in a partisan situation, and I will say I envy Nebraska for having a nonpartisan legislature, every name goes on a ballot with no reference to a party, and that's, that's kind of appealing as well. But I think these things are likely to make the general public more interested in their democracy, more excited about voting, because we have a voice finally. A third of the population of the state now has a voice at the first step of the process, and that's a good thing. That's great. Laurel, you take the next wrap up, please. Yeah, so I mean, I think just echoing some of what Jill said, I think that primary election rules are a great place for the kind of laboratories of democracy to be at work and to see you know, how different types of institutions affect who participates and which candidates get elected. 
And, you know, when we think about primary elections more broadly, Jill mentioned the kind of value of getting a third of the electorate involved early in the process. And I think, you know, it's not just early in the process, it's that primary elections might be the process in many cases. That when you have safe districts, whether because of, you know, redistricting and gerrymandering or just because of the political geography of where people live, in many races, whoever wins the primary election is almost certain to win the general election. And so the wider the set of voices we have in primary elections, the more representative our elected officials are. And so I think that rules that open participation more broadly and efforts by organizations like the League of Women Voters and others to get people involved in uh, civic participation are really valuable in terms of helping ensure that elected officials have incentives to be responsive to a wider set of voices and the broader electorate. Thanks, Laurel. Secretary Bellows, Shanna, the last word to you, because you know what I want you to do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, First, Mainers should be so proud. In 2022, in the general election, we were first in the nation in voter participation. We always have really strong voter turnout. So that brings me to the second point. Uh, However you think you might want to participate in March, it is not too late. You don't have to remember the deadlines at the beginning of the program. Just call your clerk today to verify your registration if you're unsure. And third, vote. We make it really easy and convenient and secure to vote in our free, safe and secure elections here in Maine. Uh, Let's be number one, regardless of how you vote, just vote in 2024. That's great. So that's our show today. Thank you to our guests this afternoon, Shanna Bellows, Maine Secretary of State, Jill Goldthwaite, Hancock County journalist and political columnist, a former Maine State Senator herself, and Laurel Harbord-Young, Professor of Political Science, Faculty Fellow, Institute for Policy Research at Northwestern University. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM, streaming at WERU.org. If you have a comment about this show, send it to news at WERU.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. The League website is LWVME.org for more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in our series. Subscribe to our podcast at lwvme.org. Thanks for listening. See you next month.